I don't know about you, but I love his presence. I don't want to go through a day where I don't acknowledge and feel his presence. And when we come together and we worship, and uh, thank you for the worship team to being so faithful this morning. When we come together to worship and we agree in worship and you sense his presence, it's so, it's, it's my favorite thing. And I hope it's becoming your favorite thing because it's going to be a whole lot of it in heaven. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Do you think about heaven? Sorry to think about heaven. Um, today we get to start a sermon series I've entitled Essential. It comes from a statement of essential truths, and I just took the one word, obviously. Um, and I, we're going to be starting a series. We're going to look through the seven essential doctrines uh, in our statement of essential truths. And I want to just take them and look at them and uh, preach them a little bit. Just teach you about them, but also tell you why they're important for you in this day and age. Amen? And uh, doctrine, you know, can be one of those words that's very big and heavy sometimes if you let it. But the simplest terms, in the simplest terms, it's a belief or a set of beliefs held and taught. And so exploring our doctrine, doctrine is asking what we believe. And every believer should be able to say what they believe. At the very least, you, can, you should be able to start with, I believe in the Savior, the Healer, the Spirit, Baptizer, and the Coming King. That's a good place to start. And so there are some beliefs that are essential and there are foundational. And uh, if we get into these, get these twisted, then uh, it can affect the whole. I read an article some years ago by James Woods, and he talked about things in Scripture that are normal, normative versus unique. And sometimes we get into danger of making the unique occurrences in Scripture like when people got healed, when, when Peter passed by and his shadow raised over them. We're not making shadow casting ministries here at church, just to give you a heads up. But when you read in the, in, in the Acts of the Apostles and you read about, you know, how the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and 2, verses 4, and 4 verses, ah, uh, goodness, chapter 4, verses 8. Chapter 8, verse 8. Chapter 19, verses 44. We begin to see a pattern, right? You get into 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, chapter 14. You begin to see a pattern of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so we create a doctrine around that because it's normal in Scripture. And so these are some of the foundational reasons why it's important to have doctrine, why it's important to understand what you believe. And so over the next seven weeks, uh, we will be looking at the essential truths we find in Scripture and that are foundational to our faith. And so today we're beginning with the triune God. Then we're going to look at the Bible, creation, spirit, baptism, the church, salvation. And we're going to end on Easter Sunday talking about the Lord's coming. Amen? I'm excited about that. Are you excited about that? I was saying to somebody today that sometimes when we talk about the Lord's coming, we talk about a lot of doom and gloom. But man, I have a lot of hope for the Lord's coming. Amen? Our series will follow, as I mentioned, a newly refreshed so it, which is a statement of essential truths. You hear me say so it, that's what I mean by that, of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. There have been three primary versions of the statement in 1928. Again, it was revised in 1980, and now in most recent revision is 2022. So this is a pattern that we have, and there's been other smaller adjustments along the way, and it's described by those who were commissioned for this project as an extensive collaborative process to rephrase and refresh what is most essential to us. We always had to be growing and learning 
as we go on in this faith. Amen? I'm going to say that a lot, so I hope I get a few echoes. I hope you agree with something I say this morning. Amen? Amen. Good, good, good. Uh, they also admit that the statement doesn't cover all biblical truth. How could it? And they acknowledge the understanding that there is some diversity of theological thought among us, and it's something I think we all need to understand as we go through this process. However, again, in the refreshed uh, committee's words, it says, we remain committed as the Pentecostal community to the historic creeds of the church, the evangelical convictions of faith, and the full gospel of Christ, that Christ is Savior, Healer, Spirit, Baptizer, and soon-coming King. You may be wondering now, why in the world do I have a Rubik's Cube up here? And probably the biggest one you've ever seen, maybe. <laughs> I ordered this one because of its size, and I thought it was kind of cool, and I've had to hold my son back all week, because if he makes this up, I'm not fixing it. Uh, well, <laughs> excuse me. <clears throat> in studying and admiring the work uh, that the Refresh Committee has done, I was reminded of the cohesiveness and unity found in Scripture. Uh, Ruby's Cube, it has multiple colors, and it is quite obviously a puzzle, and a puzzle that I have unsuccessfully been trying to complete since the first encountered it way back in the 1980s. And I know I have white hair, but I know I also don't look that old. You were supposed to say amen to that. Well, when I did complete this cubic cipher, it was because I took the stickers off it and repositioned them. And don't act like you didn't do it. And then you show it to your brother and it's like, I can see you peeled the stickers. You didn't do it. We've all been there. Well, some of us have been there. It's interesting. I've always marveled at people that can complete this. And I actually watched somebody, a video of somebody do one that is a 17 by 17. So 17, this is a 3 by 3. 17 by 17, and he timed himself, and it took him three and a half hours to complete it. And I'm like, it'd take me three and a half decades. But anyway, but just this last summer in July, uh, the record to complete this one was, was completed by a guy named Max Park in Long Beach, California, um, at a, a festival that was happening there, and he solved this thing, and can you guess how quickly he did this? 3.13 seconds. Anybody want to try? I got give you a head start. This one's already completed. That's the only way I'd be able to do it. When I look at the, uh, the solved Rubik's Cube, it displays the colors separately, and there is something so satisfying about that. I don't know if it is for you, but I don't, I don't ever want to do anything with this. But, you know, at some point, yeah, I'm going to have to turn this thing, right, and get it moving. Oh, no. What am I doing? I'm already lost. I'm never getting this back with three turns. I'm telling you. I'm terrible at this thing. But I love how satisfying it is when they're all together, right? And that is how we are going to approach these essentials, giving them the individual attention like each completed side of Rubik's Cube. And... Uh, when you mix the colors of the cube, the satisfaction of the beautifully compartmentalized cube leaves, but the colors remain here in this compact cube. And it kind of reminds me of scripture a little bit. It is important to look at the doctrines of the faith separately, precisely, but it is also important to understand that they all work together in the study of God, in theology. But it takes work, effort, and study to get there. So, I mean, nobody's just going to pick up a Rubik's Cube if they do. 
Uh, and that'd be so impressive. But for the first time, nobody's going to pick it up and do it in 3.13 seconds. You know, I'm, I could work at it all my life, and I would not do it in 3.13 seconds. Uh, and now they have them so smooth and so quick. They even took the stickers off. I don't think that's fair. But, but at any rate, when you mix all the colors up, you know, the satisfaction kind of goes away. But I love that they're all still there in this compact cube. It is important to look at the doctrines of our faith separately, precisely. But it's also important to understand that they're all in the scripture together, and it takes work, it takes effort to understand the doctrine. So these seven weeks is not going to give you a complete understanding of scripture. When you're done these seven weeks, you're not going to be able to go home and say, I got it, I know the Bible, backwards and forwards. No, this is, for some of you, this may be a beginning part. For some of this, this may take you to the next step, but it is a lifetime journey. It is a lifetime privilege to open this word of God and to be able to go in every day and turn it and begin to piece it together and to begin to understand more about Jesus every day. And unlike this thing, it's actually fun sometimes. I'm just joking. With that in mind, it makes perfect sense today that we begin with the triune God, the Trinity. Um, just a, as a side note, you can find the complete so at the new... Uh, written a statement of essential truths on the POC.org website. It's there for free download. There is also a commentary that is written to complement the SOET, and I'm using this as a guideline today. This is a great, well-written book, and I'm actually really excited about the fact that on March 10th, one of the editors of this book, the one who wrote the commentary on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Van Johnson, is going to be with us to talk to us about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm so excited about that. You have no idea. I just... I do. I just believe in this Word of God so much, and when we get a chance to have it expounded in a fresh way, it's amazing. It's amazing. Let's begin by reading the statement directly from uh, the refreshed show it. And I just want to acknowledge that um, well, uh, I will be quoting quite a bit of this, of this from the portion from this commentary, and just to acknowledge that Dr. Jonathan uh, Kinsler was the editor of this portion, uh, just to give him his due credit. But the triune God, in the statement of essential truth, says this. It says, there is one God, the creator, who exists eternally in unity as three equal persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triune God is loving, holy, infinite, just, and worthy of all worship. The Father accomplishes his plan of salvation through both redemption and judgment. All things will be subject to him, and his kingdom will have no end. Hallelujah. I'm halfway through and I'm already excited. <laughs> Amazing. The Father sent the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of Mary when she was a virgin. Jesus became fully human while remaining fully God, anointed by the Spirit. Jesus revealed the Father and the kingdom of God by his sinless life, teaching and miracles. After he died for our sin, God raised him from the dead. And he is now at the right hand of the Father. Praise God. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son and gives life through crea throughout creation. The Spirit draws people to repentance and new life in Jesus Christ through the Spirit's indwelling. The Father and the Son are present to all believers, making them children of God. Father, I am so thankful for this truth today. What we've experienced the triune God in this place this morning. And I just pray, O oh God, that as we look at your word, 
that we would give you precedence in this room and that the Holy Spirit would be the primary communicator in this room and that I would just be a vessel, Lord, used for your glory. And so, Father, give me clarity of speech as I present your word today. And I pray that you'd help me to function on the anointing you placed on my life to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, the first paragraph, there is one God, the creator, who exists eternally in unity as three equal persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God is loving, holy, infinite, just, and worthy of all worship. We're going to look at this as paragraph by paragraph this morning, and I don't have time to go into it in great detail, but I'm going to try my best. We'll see how we go. We recognize that God exists eternally as the three equal persons, as the equal persons of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If that doesn't make logical or physical sense to you, then you are not alone. (laughs) The section on the triune God in the Soet presents the doctrine of the Trinity, not as a logical puzzle, but as undergirding the reality of salvation and our relationship with God. If the Trinity represents part of this cubist Rubin, my illustration I used earlier, but if the Trinity represented this whole cube, if this whole cube represented the Trinity, we would still be working on this thing when the Lord comes. It's a mystery. It's called a mystery for a reason. And, and when, I, when I talk about the miraculous, I think about the Trinity. When I think about the miraculous God, I, I do. I think about the Trinity. The Trinity is a mystery to the human mind, to say the least. But this is where we begin with our study of God. To study the triune God is to look at his character and his attributes, which we will see continually resurfacing throughout our series. In fact, much of what you hear this morning, you will probably hear throughout the series because you will understand that the attributes and the person of God is through all of what we believe, of course. We look at the Old Testament, first of all, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26. It gives us a glimpse, as in other places in the Old Testament, of the triune God. Verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, in the sky, pardon me, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creature that move, creatures that move along the ground. We first, we see a plural representation in reference to God. We see the words us, our, our likeness. And not only that, if you look at the Hebrew word for God in the Old Testament, Elohim, the, the suffix of that word is a plural suffix. It acknowledges the three persons of the Trinity. You look in the New Testament, uh, however, references uh, the three persons of the Trinity explicitly In the accounts of the virgin birth in Luke chapter 1, Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3, verses 22, and the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and in the letters and other places as well. And one of the greatest pictures we get is that Jesus' baptism, where we have the voice of the Father, the Spirit descending on the Son of God, who's about to be baptized in the water. We, We see the representation of all three at once. 2 Corinthians 13, verses 14 says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit also share the name of God, Yahweh, which in the Hebrew uh, scriptures you will see represented as as four letters, Y-H-W-H in in English alliteration, uh, known as the Tetragrammaton, 
In the New Testament, you have what's the, the word is curios, which is a reference to the Lord. If you look at Exodus chapter 3, it explains Yahweh as the God of the Abrahamic covenant. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, and Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Yahweh, the Lord, the same word. Luke 4, 18 to 19 is a powerful scripture. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Hallelujah. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the Spirit is explicitly called Yahweh. It says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Praise God. The commentary says Jesus the Son is also identified as Yahweh by both Paul in Romans chapter 10 and Peter in Acts chapter 2. God the Father's sharing of his name with the Son in John chapter 17 verse 12 demonstrates the unity within the Godhead and the greatness of Jesus' name which we sang so greatly about this morning. Amen? Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 to 11 says this. It says, Therefore God exalted him, the Son, to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, Yahweh. Gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The true nature of the one God who is the creator of all things is an essential affirmation of Christian theology that sets us apart from other religions and cults. The Trinity is unique to Christianity. No other, God, no other uh, world faith would, would reference something so miraculous. They certainly reference, there's certainly a lot of other gods, hundreds and thousands and millions of other gods and other faiths, but none, none of the other faiths will say that there's three distinct persons that represent one God. The attribute of love sums up God's very being in 1 John. A love manifested to us through the giving of his Son. The triune eternal nature of God as loving is defensible on the basis that God must have someone to love in order to always be selfless. An eternal father loving an eternal son removes any possible contradiction. This I'm going to come back to a little bit later, but it is so important to understand that God must have someone to love in order to always be selfless, but this is part of the Trinity that people misunderstand the most, and I will return to it a little later. God is just... And we recognize God's justice in relation to his love. He doesn't judge because he's just angry. He doesn't judge because he feels only that it's his right, even though at times I'm sure God is angry with us. And at times, of course, it's always just his right, but he does everything from love. All is his justice, all of his justice is motivated by love. Important to understand this relationship, the perfect love, justice, and communion. He remains completely selfless 
and has been for all eternity. Next paragraph focuses on the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. And it says this, The Father accomplishes his plan of salvation through both redemption and judgment. All things will be subject to him, and his kingdom will have no end. I know I'm moving through this path pretty quickly. Are you pacing with me this morning? Good, good. Some with confused faces, but I'll, hopefully I'll get you back around. The Father is the source of salvation. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? The Father is the source of salvation, which is in accordance with his revealed purpose and love. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-6 to says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. His plan of salvation includes redemption of those who place their faith in him as well as perfect justice or his judgment of his enemies. We sometimes like to talk about the salvation or the redemptive part, but we don't like to talk about the judgment part and that it's coming one day. And one day we'll all stand before Jesus, but it's important to understand this when we talk about God the Father. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 18 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Then he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We cannot acknowledge the redemptive power of God without also acknowledging judgment and his perfect justice. We move down, and I'm moving through this kind of quickly, but again, just pace with me. The next paragraph highlights the sending of the Son by the Father. The Father sent the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the statement says, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of Mary when she was a virgin. Jesus became fully human while remaining fully God. Anointed by the Spirit, Jesus revealed the Father and the kingdom of God by his sinless life, teaching the miracles after he died for our sin, God raised him from the dead, and he is now at the right hand of the Father. Mystery. If you can read that part of this statement and you don't understand that there is a little bit of mystery involved, I don't know about you, but Holy Spirit conception is a bit of a mystery to me. A virgin birth is a bit of a mystery to me. <laughs> we understand biological. I've talked to many people who try and defend the Bible from a natural standpoint, and I understand that, and there's much in the Scripture that, that from a, uh, all of Scripture, from a logical standpoint, is, is defensible in my, in my heart and my belief. But there's a lot of things that we try to describe and try to defend from the natural, and we don't acknowledge the miraculous. 
I've had conversations with people, and I say, okay, well, what is the foundation that we're going to stand on? If we're going to talk about this from an apologetic, from a defending the faith kind of standpoint, what, what platform are we standing on? And if we're not standing on a platform of faith and acknowledging that the fact that I believe in miracles and you may not, then we're going to come to an impasse at some point. I love reading about things and people who try to describe how the, how the Red Sea was split. But I'm also okay to understand that God can split the Red Sea. He can open up the earth when he needs to open up the earth. He can bring the wind when he wants to bring the wind. He can tell it to be quiet when he wants it to be quiet. And he can calm the sea when he wants it to be calm. And I'm okay with saying that. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he's miraculous. And I, and I acknowledge it when I look at the Trinity and it becomes so clear to me. And it's not necessarily about whether we can prove to people that, you know, without definitive, that miracles, it's not about that. It's about belief in Jesus Christ. It's about understanding that he is a miracle-working God. And that if this book is true, this book presents a miracle-working triune God to us in clear language. It is impossible to be a Christian and not acknowledge the miracles. Understanding that Jesus was both fully human and fully God is paramount to the doctrine of the Trinity. In Jesus Christ, God the Son became fully human while remaining fully God. This enabled him to be our Savior, High Priest and Lord. For all eternity, the Son of God existed in equality alongside the Father, but he became flesh to dwell with humanity. It was his desire to dwell amongst us. The Bible proclaims him, the Son, as our God and Savior in Titus chapter 2 and first, Second Peter uh, verses 1 uh, and 2. Chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, prayer, I mean, noting that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus Christ, as also mentioned in Colossians chapter 1 verse 19. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says this, Simon Peter, a servant an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through knowledge of God and, our, and of Jesus our Lord. Jesus lived full of the Spirit. It says that in Luke. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit. A key witness that Jesus is the Messiah. He has come to fulfill the Messiah's mission, as I talked about, we read earlier in Luke 4, 18 and 19, effectively destroying the works of the devil, as it proclaims in Matthew 4 and 1 John chapter 3. Jesus is Lord. He is God. Jesus is Lord. It's foundational to our understanding of Scripture and of everything. If you do not believe Jesus is Lord, then you're at an impasse. This is the part where we break fellowship even at times. People say, oh, I've had people come up to me and say, oh, we believe the same thing you believe from a different faith. And they'll begin to describe things. And they'll describe similarities. And I'm like, wow, that's really similar. You're right. And then they'll say, oh, this, they'll mention something about the creation story or other things. And I'll be like, yeah, there's great similarities. But at some point, I'll stop to them and say, do you understand Jesus as Lord? And if they say no, then 
we're not serving the same God. There may be similarities in what you believe and what I believe. But if you cannot acknowledge Jesus as Lord, we do not serve the same God. Jesus is God. It says in Colossians chapter 1 that by him and through him all things were created. Think about what it says in Genesis. Who does it say in Genesis created the earth? It says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And you read in Colossians it says by him and through him, Jesus Christ, all things are created. And he sustains and holds all things together. Jesus is God. I reached an impasse with a conversation with somebody who came knocking on my door. You can guess who it was. And he would argue with me about it. And I asked him, I said, open your Bible and read it. I said, you can even read the translation that you have. Read what it says in, first Coloss- in Colossians chapter 1. He says, I don't want to. I says, I can imagine why. I said, let me read it for you. Actually, I said, I know it by memory. I said, by him and through him, all things are created. Now, who's him? Who are they talking about? The scripture you read says God, but in the actual Greek language, this references Jesus Christ as Lord. It says that by him and through him. And then I said, now who does it say in Genesis created the earth? Well, I don't want to answer that. Of course you don't want to answer that. I'm not going to come at people and just try to prove people wrong, but I am going to show them the word of God. Because no matter what you say, if you say you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you answer to this word, and you answer to it first, and the Spirit of God will confirm the word in your heart. Sometimes we want a word from God, and we, we pray, and we say, oh, God hasn't spoken to me yet. Have you opened the word yet? That's our first and primary revelation from, Jesus, from God, is the word of God. It's right here in front of you. Start there. I'm not saying ever stop praying, keep praying, but, but you got to start there, because this whole book, the whole meta-narrative of Scripture points to Jesus Christ being God being Lord, even right back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it says that his heel is going to crush the head of the enemy thousands of years before Christ came to earth. The word is full of prophecies telling me that Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord. And we have to understand this. It's foundational in our faith. Before we close We must also acknowledge the third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son and gives life throughout creation. The Spirit draws people to repentance and new life in Jesus Christ. Through the Spirit's indwelling, the Father and the Son are present to all believers, making them children of God. Since the Father gave the ascended Son the Spirit, who then poured the Spirit out on all flesh, as it says in Acts chapter 2. Praise God. The work of Pentecost is truly the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it's done in perfect unity. The Holy Spirit plays an integral part in God's plan of salvation. He draws people to repentance and new life in Jesus Christ by by convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is why when I preach the gospel, I just preach the gospel. And I come up here under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and I do my study in my office under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So when I come up here, I understand it is not my job to convince you that Jesus is real. I am just faithful in presenting his word, and I allow the Holy Spirit to communicate that word to you. And he is the convincer. And for you this morning, you may be here and hearing the word for the first time. 
and you're feeling this drawing, you're feeling this pull, and you're like, I've never thought about the Bible in this way. I've never thought about God in this way. I'm telling you this morning that you are feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit, and he is drawing you home. I don't know how you can go through a day as a believer and not acknowledge the presence of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned the advocate just last week, and this is how Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. It says there in verse 13 and 15, but when, the, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Hallelujah. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. If I was going to take one passage to preach on the Trinity, I might just start here. So much truth in here. The Holy Spirit also gives understanding concerning the need for Jesus, our need for Jesus. He makes us aware of the sin that's in our life, makes us aware of Jesus' righteous work and his reversal of the enemy's work. Amen? Some of you may be experiencing the enemy's work in your life right now, and you may be experiencing some kind of an oppression or, or some kind of work. And yes, we need to all acknowledge this morning that if there's Jesus and if there's God and if there is a triune God, there is an enemy of our souls as well. We cannot say that God the Father is redemptive and he's also a God of judgment and not acknowledge that there is an enemy of our souls. We need to understand this morning that the Spirit can lead us away from that. We, we say it all the time in, in the Lord's Prayer, right? Lead us not into temptation. We're asking the Holy Spirit. We're asking the Father that through the Son and the Holy Spirit to lead us not. You guide me, Lord. Give me your mind. Give me your heart. Lead me away from temptation. Sometimes we say, give me the strength to go through it. How about we say, Get me a, give me away from it? Some of us live as if we're trying to live as close to the line that represents, you know, the world versus the line that we're, versus living by the Spirit. And we figure we can try and tiptoe and walk on that line as, as much as we can. But I don't think that that's what the call of God does. I don't think that that's what the Holy Spirit calls me to do. The Holy Spirit calls me to righteousness, to holiness. He calls me to flee evil. He speaks to my heart. He gives me discernment in a way that I can never discern myself. He makes me aware of the enemy's work and enemy's schemes in my life. He gives me these, this, this understanding that I need Jesus. The heart of the repentant is cleansed by the Holy Spirit, as it says in Acts 15, 8 and 9, who applies Christ's redemptive work and indwells in the body of the believer. Through the Spirit's indwelling, I need you to get this this morning, through the Spirit's indwelling, the Father and the Son are present to all believers, making them children of God. The through the Spirit's indwelling, the Father and the Son are present to all believers. This is why when people ask me, you know, should I pray? How should I pray? What if I prayed and asked my grandmother to do this? Why? It's not even a matter, it's not even a question of, of whether you should or not. I would say unequivocally no, because the Scripture tells us that. I, my question is, why would you want to when the Word tells us that the, that the Son of God 
sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for you. We have access to his ears directly. The Spirit gives us a sensitivity to what Jesus Christ wants. I heard it explained one time that the Holy Spirit's role is like almost like the floodlight that's in the front of the church that's always behind those bushes, right? And we have the big cross on the front of the church sometimes. And the big light is shining up, but you can't see the light because the light's concern is shining the light on the sun. The Holy Spirit's concern is not to bring glory necessary to himself. It is to bring glory to God, but it is to shine light on what the Son of God has done. It is to bring attention to the Son of the living God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. God's gift of the Holy Spirit brings the very real presence of the Father and the Son to those who receive Jesus as Lord. We know that God is present to all believers and lives in us by the Spirit he gave us. It says in 1 John chapter 3, The Spirit's indwelling makes us the temple of the living God, rendering the physical temple obsolete. I'm not saying that this building is not important, but you are the temple of the living God. The Spirit indwells in you. We do not have to enter the Holy of Holies like they did in the Old Testament. We get invited in freely now into his presence. And this is what I think about. Again, if I can go back to the Lord's Prayer, it says, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I just think of the unhindered access to the presence of God that God had imagined for us to experience even now. Heaven, its, it's, it's measurements, is, I believe in, in Scripture, is, is, is referenced as 12,000 stata by 12,000 stata by 12,000 stata. And if you look at the measurements of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, it's 12 cubits by 12 cubits by 12 cubits. There's a parallel there for a reason. And he invites you, he says, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He says, you know what, experience the presence of God now as if you were in heaven. Obviously, we understand it's not heaven on earth right now. But he says, you have access to me now. Don't wait for heaven. Don't wait. Heaven's going to be great. Unhindered. Un, un, un. There's no more confusion. There's no more mystery when we get to heaven. There's no more sickness and, and death or any of that. There's none of that anymore. But today, Jesus says, you have access to me now. Don't wait. The Holy Spirit lives in you and speaks in you and helps you discern life and helps you walk through this life and points you towards Jesus Christ, the Son. This fulfills the key component of God's plan. God will dwell with humanity. Go back to Ezekiel 37, Leviticus 26, and even go way ahead to Revelations 21, verse 3. And it reminds us there that my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. The Holy Spirit brings this statement to life. The presence of the Holy Spirit also offers believers new intimacy in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. It says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit who received you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption the sonship, and by him you cry, Abba, Father. You cry, Holy God, Father. And you've often heard probably in the Greek that that Abba, the closest translation is Daddy. 
just projects an intimacy, a relationship. My son is, he's not here, I couldn't ask him permission to say this, but he's eight years old, and I, as long as he's alive and as long as he's, he wants to, he can crawl up on my lap and sit on my lap. He could be 35 years old, and I'll be like clogging my boy around because he's my boy. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but I'm not dead serious. If he can't carry himself, I'll carry him because he's my boy. And I want him to feel that intimacy with his dad until heaven. And I want to show him the Father by how I am intimate with him. My greatest picture, how I understand God the Father, I've said this before here, I think, is uh, the feeling I get when I feel the presence of God is like when my dad used to pray for me when I was a little boy and I would feel his big hand on the back of my head. It's a similar feeling for me. It's a similar intimacy for me there. And it's provided through the power of the Holy Spirit who comes. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, all of God dwells within us. And he invites us into a relationship that is like nothing else. It's like nothing else. And it's not a temporal thing. It is an eternal thing. 2 Corinthians 2.16 tells us, we have the mind of Christ as spirit-led children, so we can walk as Christ did. John, 1 John tells us, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. There's the commission. If we are to understand the Trinity, we need to understand that the Bible proclaims that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. The Bible expounds the attributes and the character of God displayed in all three. So though they are distinct persons, they are one God as spoken of in Deuteronomy 6.4 when he says, Hear, O Lord Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They exist in perfect unity, in perfect love, and with perfect justice. And as we close, listen to how Timothy Keller describes this truth this morning. He says, the life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of others. That creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. So it is, the Bible tells us, each of the divine persons enters upon the others. None demands the others revolve around him each voluntarily circles the other two pouring love delight and adoration into them each person of the trinity loves adores diverts to and rejoices in the others that creates a dynamic pulsating dance of joy and love the early leaders of the greek church had a word for this perichoresis known as how the word choreography within it it means literally to dance or to flow around. And Timothy Keller is the reason for God. I really like the imagery of this Rubik's Cube as it pertains to our beliefs because as you will see in the weeks to come, the Trinity is strategically interwoven into all the essentials. 
Over the next few weeks, we're going to expound on the character of God in, in so many ways, and you're going to see the triune God woven into our study on creation, into our study on the church and the Bible, and yes, into the study on, on restoration and eschatology and the things to come. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to see the, the Trinity interwoven and the roles of the Trinity and the persons of the Trinity interwoven all through it, and I'm excited about it. I want you to understand how important this is. Yes, this is a doctrinal sermon series, but let me tell you why this is important for you today. Because one of the biggest misconceptions, and if I can go back to what I talked about earlier, one of the biggest misconceptions, and I had somebody look at me, and they said, how can you serve a God who created you just to serve him? What is God without you? Like, what, what kind of a selfish God would create people just to serve him, just, just to acknowledge him and everything? And I'm just like, oh my goodness, you just don't get it. Let me share something with you. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit gives us the picture of perfect community, perfect unity. When it says in, Je in John chapter 17, be Bring them together, Lord. Unite them as we are one. You know, bring them together as one as we are one. He's inviting us into the community and the fellowship of the Trinity for all of eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed each other's company and had perfect unity and perfect community. He didn't create us so that we would just worship him and because he needed somebody to worship him. He created us because he wanted us to invite us into that perfect unity. He invited us to help us come and join in on the dance and then to put on display for the world the unity of God that should be reflected in the life of the church. And so it would also affect the life of your family and those families that have not yet been, the children that are yet to come, the generations that are yet to come. The unity of the Trinity can permeate through the generations. And you may say today, I had a lousy father. I had a mother who left me somewhere or, or abandoned me and I don't understand, I don't understand the unity. Take a moment and say, Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, let me experience the dance. Let me experience the presence of the Trinity. Let me experience the unity of the Trinity. And today, you may have had a parent who've let you down greatly, but today you can be introduced to a father, Abba Father, who will never let you down. And you'll be spoken the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit. He comes and God indwells in you. And the Spirit will remind you day after day that God sent his Son to die on the cross for you. And to take your sins and all the things that you feel guilty for and all the things you beat yourself up over. And he'll nail them, he nailed them to the cross. And the Spirit comes. The God of all creation comes in and dwells in you to remind you of that daily, that you are his. He didn't create us because he needed someone to worship him. He created us to invite us into the divine family of God, into divine unity of the Trinity, so that we would experience what he has experienced for all time. Amen.
Father, your word is amazing. I feel in taking on this massive topic that I just barely scratched the surface today. And I know even still it was a lot of information, oh God. And we feel the complexity of the cube today. <laughs> and by doing this today, oh God, we've made a few turns. And we brought things hopefully a little bit clearer, Lord Jesus. But as we begin to study creation, as we begin to study the importance of the Bible and the importance of the church, Lord, and the importance, Lord Jesus, of your baptism in the Holy Spirit, oh God, I pray that we would begin to understand even deeper every week the triune God. And so, Father, as we begin our journey today, Lord, I pray, oh God, that you would challenge us. I pray that today, oh God, if this does nothing else, that it would drive our face into your word more than we have ever had before. I pray that there'd be a desire sparked in our hearts, oh God, that if maybe we don't have a regular habit of reading your word, that we would begin today and that it would transpire tomorrow and that we would go to 28 days that creates a habit and then fire on for the rest of our life, oh God, that we would begin to understand the importance of Lord every way, every day, waking up and spinning the cube again, oh God, and bringing more clarity to who you are and what you have planned for us, Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for your presence, which we experience here today. Thank you for your presence, which will not stay in this building, O oh God, but it will go with the temple. And then wherever we are, Lord, throughout the week, we will be the temple of the ever-living God. And I trust, Lord, that that can't help but affect the people around us. Let your spirit emanate from us, Lord Jesus. We acknowledge that it is the spirit of God that draws people. Let us push us to our knees to pray. And ask your spirit, oh God, to reveal yourself to those we love, to our community. Lord, we love you with all our heart. Thank you for inviting us in the perfect unity of the Godhead. Not that we become a God, but we do become children of the living God. We get invited into your presence, Lord, not for a time, not for a season, for all eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Everybody say it. Amen. Let's just take some time to worship God this morning before we leave. And even in this, as we sing this next song, you know, just pray and say, God, we just prayed about the Holy Spirit. Ask him to seal this word in your heart this morning. Ask him to put a desire in your heart to know him more every day. But ask God to just speak to your heart. Put a desire in your heart every day to wake up and to know him more. Ask him to seal by the power of the Holy Spirit this word in your heart. Let's just worship.